Well, how are you this evening? Good. I got offered a hamburger today. Sure sounded good, and then I thought, uh oh. I'm glad I did think. I don't like to go to town during the days of unleavened bread. It's temptation everywhere you turn, and sometimes we don't think, and we can get ourselves in trouble. I think at least most of you here were were here yesterday evening, and uh, we got talking about uh, the beginnings of mankind's experience on earth from Adam and Eve on down, and some of the uh, problems that exist within the first six chapters of Genesis, and discuss some of those about the giants in the earth and so on. Uh, and I think it is very clear that demons did not consort with women. Uh, that is an impossibility based on scriptures, and even Christ himself, when he addressed that issue, said, you know not the scriptures. So that is not the only verse that has uh, to do with that particular thing, but there are other scriptures indeed as well, and we went to a couple of them. Uh, but there were giants, and uh, that was natural, and it was, in those early times, there were giants in several different places at several different times. So God obviously made the genetic structures so that it allowed for that, and we find uh, skeletons to this day, and they're uncovering some as time goes on, and have in this country of 13, 14 foot people. Uh, some of those discoveries get hidden or tucked away in a back room at Smithsonian, or they're declared hoaxes or whatever, uh, depending on how much they mess with uh, the view of Christopher Columbus and what's written in your fifth grade history book. <clears throat> but we'll move on from that. This evening, uh, I want we, we were in Noah there, obviously speaking of that time when corruption and violence and, and uh, danger were on the earth, and God said His way was so perverted, He was ready to just kill mankind and get rid of them entirely. Uh, he had had it, in other words. So, some of these other things whether they be technically correct or not that we discussed last night or how it actually happened or whether there might be another explanation is really uh, immaterial in some respects. They're not that big an issue. The big issue was the conduct of mankind and how corrupt and violent and cheating and stealing and lying they were. And I, I think that that thing that I dis discussed about there being some giants, men who were bigger, stronger, more powerful, and better warriors than others, they could take any woman they wanted and kill her husband or whatever they wanted to do. So it was gang warfare, and government had broken down, anarchy ruled. <clears throat> so the biggest and strongest took what they wanted. We won't go so far as to say the survival of the fittest, because it smacks of evolution, but it was a, a situation of the strongest and the meanest, and that is not the way God wants things run, okay? So he had 
Noah prepare a big boat. Now, as we all know, uh, they had no big boats back in those days because men had just recently uh, climbed down out of trees uh, and, and, and didn't have much, you know, upstairs. <clears throat> they had learned to peel bananas and, and crack nuts, and that was about it. But, you know, we jest and we laugh, uh, a slime that came from under a rock. But we buy into that thinking more than we realize sometimes. We may intellectually disagree and say, no, there is a God who is a creator. But when they say, well, this wasn't possible or that wasn't possible or something else couldn't have happened, they're using the evolution theory on you, and you don't realize how much it affects the way you view a certain situation. And, and it's unknowingly, uh, subliminally, they do it to us. They throw it at us all the time, all the time, all the time, and at our kids in school. So it affects your thinking, even though you know there's a creator. Uh, how did this happen? So, in their history books, they will tell you that uh, mankind couldn't have moved back and forth because they didn't have the boats to go across the ocean. That's, that's kind of the standard thing. Well, finally around 1492, they had a big enough boat that Columbus could barely make it across the Atlantic and found the New World. Oh, whoopee-doo. Uh, but that is not the truth. I think Adam and Eve probably had much higher intellect than any of us here by far. And I think that those early people, uh, having just been created and not having been filled with pollution and mercury poisoning and lead poisoning and, and cultural poisoning and every kind of poison you can talk about, and eating pig for 6,000 years, let's say, uh, they were probably far sharper and mentally way ahead of us. And what have we done? In a hundred years or less, we've gone from horses and wagons to steam engines, railroad cars, uh, automobiles, airplanes, jet airplanes, spacecraft, just bang, in a technological revolution. And it, it hasn't taken long. So those were people who were a lot smarter than us. And so and so the great scientist doesn't die of cancer at, at age 68. They live eight, nine hundred years, nearly a thousand years, and accumulated knowledge that whole thing, time. And they didn't have Alzheimer's for the last night, 800. Uh, they remain sharp. Uh, there has been quite a bit uncovered, and I don't want to go into all that, but, but it is central to the story in some respects of what man did in the early years that is poo-pooed by historians and archaeologists and others. They have found what looked like runways down in South America, got pictures of them, uh, and other places. They've got paved roads they found here in the American Southwest. You don't hear about it, but once in a while somebody will write about it, and they'll even say where they are. Uh, I just happened to catch five minutes of a history channel the other day because Marla had been 
taping a program for me that I have not had a chance to watch that may have some information good for here. But, uh, and it was about the Knights Templar coming over here looking for Jerusalem, essentially. Two and a half, or a couple of hours, I guess, and I haven't seen it yet. But I've read and heard those things otherwise. But this is on the History Channel, that they're discussing this as a possibility. Wow. Where do they get that information? Where do they dig it up? It isn't in a normal history book, is it? But they picked it up somewhere and put it in the documentary. But that little segment I caught, and I think I might have mentioned this last night or the other day, uh, you know, when you get senile, you, you forget what you told somebody and tell them the same stories over and over. Uh, anyway, uh, this little jet airplane, and it had the swept wings and everything. They built it up into a bigger model. I know I was talking about it after potluck, but uh, they used the exact dimension, same ratios, and made a bigger model airplane, put a motor in it, and the thing flew like it was designed that way. All the aerodynamics that we have in a jet airplane today, they had then. <clears throat> I think that I, I didn't catch it all, but I think they found that over at Asia somewhere. Uh, and they found other such things. So, I have long held a theory that mankind probably was flying before the flood. Uh, and may have had a very advanced uh, uh, society. And that's one reason, when the Tower of Babel came, that they were able to so quickly come to the point that God said nothing would be restrained from them. They would have been flying again, if they hadn't had flown before, and they would have been going into outer space again very quickly. So God stopped that by confounding the languages and creating confusion, and then they departed and went to other parts of the world. So I, I want to spend a little time this evening giving us a clearer picture of how things were back then as opposed to the historical perspective that we're given by the scholars, okay? And I, I'll take a little time doing it. Now, let's look at this boat that Noah built. Now, this was only 1,600 years, well, roughly, uh, after Adam was created. And if evolution were true, then um, they wouldn't have progressed very far if Adam could just barely walk. But if he were created as a fully functioning human being made in the image of God with a clear, sharp mind, what could these people have accomplished? So God told Noah, I want you to build a huge boat. And Noah did what God said. Now this boat, let's see, chapter 6, verse 14, Make you an ark of gopher wood. Room shall you make in the ark and shall pitch it within and without with pitch. Now, so far we have to assume that Noah knew how to cut down a tree. He knew what gopher wood was, and he must have had the capacity to cut, saw, shape that wood, uh, and fit it together in such a way that it would not come apart if it took a pounding in heavy seas. Uh, that takes quite a little knowledge, that kind of woodworking capacity. Uh, whether tongue and groove or some kind of, of fitting and 
uh, joints they made that would fit together and not come apart, uh, fastening devices, nails, so on, screws, who knows. Room shall you make in the ark. So they understood the concept of a dwelling with divided rooms. They weren't just living under a tree by now. I'm being a bit sarcastic, but... Uh, and you shall pitch it within and without with pitch. So they also had capacity to uh, waterproof. And this is the fashion which you shall make it. The length shall be 300 cubits, the breadth 50 cubits, and the height 30 cubits. Now we know a cubit roughly is 18 inches or the length to the elbow. Uh, if you use the 18-inch cubit, and there were more than one cubit was used at one time or another. The commonest was the 18-inch one. That would have made this boat 450 feet long. That's a football field and a half. 75 feet wide. This room is 50 feet, so it would have been 25 feet wider than this room. Uh, 450 feet. This building is a little over 100 feet long, so it would have been four and a half times the length of this building and 25 feet wider. That's Pretty good sized. Most here probably have never even been on a boat that big in your lifetime. Um, let's see. And 45 feet high. This building's only 19 feet. So more than twice the height of this ceiling this boat was. Now if you use the 21.88 inch cubit... It was 547 feet long. That's five and a half of these buildings. By 91 wide, that's almost twice as wide as this one. And 47 feet high, that's roughly three times higher than this. Had they evolved or not? <laughs> you know? We're going to put windows in and all of that stuff. Now, they say, well, yeah, man did go into a dark ages in the Middle Ages uh, when they did not have much progress. But that was for a limited amount of time. And there were periods of time when man did not do much. But God told Noah to do this. Um, he may not have had all the modern tools, and he didn't have the help of probably hundreds or thousands of workers. This was a project Noah was to do, probably with maybe only his sons. One or four men. Does it even say? It, it may have that the, that the boys helped him. I, I don't remember. It didn't look that close. But anyway, a very, very small crew, and it took him a hundred years. But then when you live 900, that's not too bad. Uh, But a point of what I was trying to say is this. When God has a project that he wants done, he wants his own people to do it. Could Noah have hired people around in the world, the heathen, the liars, the thieves, the murderers? Probably. But God wanted it to be done by someone who was a God-fearing man. Now... There's some instruction there for us. God has called us out of this world by name, each and every one of us. 
And he has some projects that need done here at the end. Now, by his own mentality, his own approach, he is very limited in who he can get to do his work. He confines it to those who will obey him and serve him, and he does not want others involved. Now, that is echoed in the story of Ezra, Nehemiah. Uh, In the book of Ezra, there were those who were trying to act like they were friends and wanted in on the project, and they said, no, this is something only we can do. So it's not we in that sense that limit God. It is He who limits Himself to do His projects through those whom He has chosen. So that puts us in a certain category, doesn't it? It gives us opportunity and it gives us responsibility and in turn it gives us accountability. To whom much is given, much is required. So if God has opened our minds to understand some of the things He is about to do, then by the very fact that He opened the mind means He intends us to do it, not someone else. Now He's going to open some more minds and bring them to help, but it will be limited only to those whom He stirs to come accomplish the program. And a point I made last night I think is worth reviewing here and repeating because it's so important for us to grasp. And that is that we're going to have people coming from all over the world who have God's Spirit, but they may speak different languages and they'll come from totally different cultures. And it will be a very difficult thing to blend all of those together. God may even have to give us a gift of tongues to begin to even understand each other and reverse the Tower of Babel. He confused the languages there, and he may bring them all back so that we can understand each other here. And the cultural things that we grew up with, we're going to have to make allowance for each other and have enough love to cover the differences. And that takes a lot of love. They're different than me. They look at things differently. They think differently. Uh, That will be a hurdle to overcome. But we are being put to the test because God says, we have a whole world here with different languages that fight and war among themselves, and we're headed into world war, we're headed into chaos again on the earth, worse than it's ever been, and I'm going to take some of those same people from all over the world, I'm going to bring them to one place representing all those races, all those languages, all those cultures, And by my Spirit, I'm going to cause them to live together in peace and in harmony and work together for a common good, and they'll all be one. And the lesson for this world is the contrast. Now, that gives ammunition to go preach to the world that their way isn't working. Look, you got the same mix we do. You got you got the same cultural problems, you got the same language problems. We're making it work, and you're iron and miry clay and fighting among yourselves and plotting against each other. What an incredible witness that will be. The more I think about this, it, it, it's an incredible thing to consider that the spirit of God is the difference and we will be able to do what nobody else can do because of God.
what a powerful witness that will be to the world. Okay, that's a review. Now, what we are going to discuss in the movement of peoples in this series is going to be include back and forth and forth and back across the oceans. Now, was that possible clear back in Abraham, Isaac, Jacob's day? Uh, were you limited to camels and little bulrush riverboats? Or was there more to it than that? Now, I want to point out, and that's one of the main reasons I have this up here. If you have that chart with you, you have, uh, where is my boy? Uh, Shem down here. Now, Shem, Ham, and Japheth were born well before the flood. And in fact, with Shem, this chart shows that he was born a hundred years before the flood ever occurred. So he was, he was one of Noah's kids, but he's already a hundred years old. And after the flood, he lived five hundred more years. From the time that ark landed on Ararat, he lived 500 years. And if you look down the line at the end of his age, you come down to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And he lived, I think I, as I recall, I'm not looking at the chart right now, but he lived at least 50 years after Jacob was born. Now, the point being, he was there saw and probably helped Noah build that huge boat. And he did not forget. Now, Noah himself lived, what was it, 400 years? Let me look here, I can see this better. Noah lived uh, to 950, 448 years after the flood. So Noah himself knew Abraham and Isaac and died during Isaac's life, about halfway through it. Jacob hadn't been born yet. So the father of the faithful knew the righteous teacher from before the flood, Noah personally, and his son Shem. And Shem lived even until about halfway through Jacob's life. So the knowledge that was there in terms of seaworthiness, in terms of shipbuilding, was still there and was easily passed down to these other people. So, if you build something that we, mankind as a whole, since those ages, did not even build anything as big as until about the middle of the 18th century, that was when the British built a steel ship that was as big or bigger than the ark. It took that long. Uh, and they had that technology before we did, long before. So it was quite possible that they could have built smaller versions of the ark. Uh, and it was perfectly seaworthy. If you check it out, you'll find that the ratio of one to six width to length is the same thing they use today. It's not like they said, well, let's put back together a big raft and see if we can get enough animals on it. 
this thing was built to be very stable in the water. It had at least three decks, I think it was, and it sat down probably 15 cubits uh, into the water and was very, very stable. Didn't leak and was made so solidly that 50, 60, 80 foot waves, if they came, would not have bothered it in the least. So that technology was there. Now, uh, they could have duplicated that quite easily and on a much smaller scale and still been very, very seaworthy. didn't have to be that big. Let's look at some scriptures. First um, Kings 9. You know, we read over things and we might, oh, sort of understand that something might have or could have happened. But I, I want us to focus a little bit here. Chapter 9, I'm going to get there in a minute. It's some of the things that were going on. Where am I here in this note? 1 Kings 9, uh, down verse 26. And King Solomon made a navy of ships, not just a boat, uh, a navy of ships, in Ezion Geber, that was a shipbuilding area, we're going to see, which is beside Eloth on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. He wasn't on the side of a river somewhere building a little river boat. He was at the Red Sea in the land of Edom. So these were seagoing ships. And Hiram sent in the navy his servants, shipmen that had knowledge of the sea. So he had trained people to sail these boats that they were building who had knowledge of the sea with the servants of Solomon. And they came to Ophir and fetched from there gold, 420 talents, and brought it to King Solomon. So he had ships going out, uh, a fleet of ships, to haul gold back from other places. Uh, Chapter 10. And here, let's go to verse 11. And the navy also of Hiram that brought gold from Ophir, brought in from Ophir great plenty of almug trees and precious stones. And the king made of the almug trees pillars for the house of the eternal and for the king's house. Now the house of the eternal, the temple they were going to put up was huge. Uh, these were not fence posts. These were pillars. So they had to have pretty good-sized boats to haul them, even if it were on a river or just across a short haul. Harps also and psalteries for singers. There came no such almug trees, nor were seen to this day. So uh, they hauled in some pretty good-sized timber that nobody had seen by the time this was written. King Solomon gave to the Queen of Sheba all her desire, whatsoever she asked, beside that which Solomon gave her of his royal bounty, So she turned and went to her own country, she and her servants. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was six hundred threescore and six talents of gold. I didn't figure that up, but uh, that's pretty heavy. Uh, Beside that, he had of the merchantmen and of the traffic of the spice merchants and all the kings of Arabia and of the governors of the country. Uh, Let's see. Verse 
Verse 21, And all King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. Verse 22, For the king had at sea a navy of Tarshish with the navy of Hiram. So he combined two navies here. Once in three years came the navy of Tarshish, bringing gold and silver, uh, ivory and apes and peacocks. So King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and for wisdom. Now notice some of the things that were imported. They didn't come from the promised land. Uh, There's things that came from uh, tropical climates, uh, apes, peacocks, ivory, ivory being from probably from elephants. Uh, so they were going to Africa. These were seagoing vessels, and they were doing worldwide trade in seagoing vessels. Now it says once in three years they came around. If you read your history, Sir Francis Drake of Britain uh, in round-the-world cruises took roughly three, three and a half years to go clear around the world. So that may be what he is discussing here. Did they go from here, where Solomon probably was, as we understand? Uh, at that time, they say that uh, the Rio Grande was navigable. So was the Colorado River. Uh, I read a report some years ago that they had found a Phoenician sailing vessel uh, in the sand near the Salton Sea in California. Uh, it had sailed up the Gulf of California, clear up to the Salton Sea. So things have changed. Has the earth lifted somewhat in time? Uh, the climate even of this area may have changed greatly if God raised it a thousand or two thousand feet, uh, part of, parts of it. Uh, but the sea, obviously, from all the studies they've done, came up the Gulf of California filled Lake Bonneville, which is the great basin of the middle of Nevada and up into northern Utah, where the salt flats are. The salt lake is very small compared to what it used to be. Uh, and there's salt flats going clear to the Nevada border from there, out by Wendover. That's where they race the automobiles on the salt flats because it's so flat and they can attain great speeds there. Well, that was all seawater. And that means that they could sail right in virtually here to Jerusalem, and may have been able to. Uh, and up the Rio Grande and across the San Juan River and, and the Colorado were navigable as well. Uh, they find the fossils and the seabeds and the salt and all those things are still there. And we've seen maps of the Cretaceous Seaway that went all the way up through this area and clear up through Canada. Uh, when? Well, there are quite a few who believe that the earth is only 6,000 years old. Uh, Kent Hovind has spent a great deal of time trying to prove that. If that's the case, that Cretaceous Seaway that they have maps of uh, has, was fairly recent. It wasn't a billion years ago, let's say. Uh, Ruth has showed me maps that were drawn uh, that... Marco Polo made, and that apparently uh, Columbus had access of, that show this continent, and they show Jerusalem on it. Ancient maps in these books. Amazing, isn't it? What might turn up here and there. So, they would tell us. 
But no, they didn't sail the seas. And they even try to say the Vikings didn't come here for crying out loud. They found villages up along in Newfoundland and over in Greenland and, and down the coast, even into the United States on the northeastern coast, where the Vikings had structures built, and they were built just like the ones over in Norway. And they try to deny it. Now, there's been so much of that found that they might once in a while now begin to say, well, you know, the Vikings came a little bit maybe, but they didn't stay. Well, they didn't. They died out for whatever reason or went back for whatever reason. But they had the capacity to sail here, didn't they? Well, Solomon did too. I kid you not. This, See, you can read these books and you can think, well, that might be and that might not be and I don't know. And I can even read Jasher and the book of Enoch and some of those things and I can say, this sounds far-fetched, this doesn't. The only thing I have as an absolute anchor is what I've proved to be the Word of God. So when they tell me, well, they didn't do this and they didn't do that, or they did do this, then we have to go here to find out what is rock solid and what we can believe in. Then we analyze all these other books and archaeological findings and this and that based on this story. Because who knows what's a fraud and what isn't? Who knows what they've distorted and what they haven't? What they've tried to hide? What they've tried to promote that really was not? And there's a lot of that. Do you think mankind is capable of lying for his own purposes? <laughs> I don't think there's any of us who haven't seen somebody lie to get what they wanted. And that's not anything new. Adam and Eve started lying immediately to God. All right, uh, I'm going to belabor this just a little bit. Let's go to Deuteronomy, because I want us to see how clear the Bible record is. Now, God told them here in this chapter on blessings and cursings, and we've referred to it, uh, whether or not formally, but we have certainly after potluck talking here and there, as we sort through to try to figure out, you know, what is the real history uh, where God said in verse 68, And the Eternal shall bring you into Egypt again with ships. By the way, whereof I spoke to you, you shall see it no more again, and there shall be sold, you shall be sold to your enemies for bondmen and bondwomen, and no man will buy you. In other words, they're going to value you very low. You'll be sold into slavery, but uh, finding buyers is even going to be tough, because... Uh, of what you have become. Now, if we limit our view to the Middle East, they had uh, roads or paths or travelways, trade routes, that went back and forth across the Middle East from Asia down into Africa and, and back over to Europe and so on. It's a narrow area and it was mainly a crossing area. In the desert, but they would have us believe that that was the promised land. Though, if that was promised to me, I'd say, "Do you have something else?" Uh, having seen it, 
But in any case, when they took slaves back and forth, or they hauled goods back and forth, it really wasn't worth it to put them on a ship up along, uh, say, out, off the beach there, Tel Aviv or somewhere, and then ship it a short distance down to Egypt, the Egypt we know today, the, the, the nation that is there. Now, when I was flying in, to give you perspective, I flew across Italy, and at 35,000 feet, you could basically see the whole country. You could see the hook, you know, down at the bottom, and then Athens and the Greek islands and so on were there, and you could see almost the whole country of Greece. And looking out the other side, you could see Cyprus. It wasn't that far away. So then coming on as we got closer to Tel Aviv to land, here was Turkey on the left. You could see the mountain peaks, and it, and it was relatively close. And you could look out the other side of the plane, and I was going back and forth, and the, the flight attendants were trying to get me to sit down, but I didn't care. Uh, anyway, as I wanted to see all this. Get over on the right-hand side of the plane, look out, and there was the coast of Egypt. It wasn't that far from Turkey around the curve Israel and where the Mediterranean made that loop and, and the, the eastern end of it. It isn't that big. <coughs> the point being, it would be easier to take a whole bunch of people that you were going to take into slavery and march them down than it would be to line up the boats, get them on the boats, sail a little bit, and then unload them. You could just about do it easier and quicker to walk them down with a lot less headache and expense and logistics and everything else. So, why would God say, if this time you sin again, I will take you in ships? Were they crossing a bigger area? Were they going to a different Egypt? to a different Assyria, possibly across the seas. But in any case, there were a lot of them. When he was speaking to them here, there were what? We figured at minimum they must have come out of Egypt with three, three and a half million. Uh, some of them died in the wilderness, but they also bred a lot of more kids out in the wilderness too. The ones that were born in the wilderness and, and came through were the ones that went into the promised land. So there could easily have been Millions of them. If you're going to move millions of people by ship, you've got to have a pretty big ship. You've got to have quite a few of them. And there's no sense in marching that many people a little ways. I mean, putting them on ships to take them that way. How many times would you have to run ships back and forth to get that many people moved? So there's something... A miss in Denmark or somewhere. Well, let's get a let's let's get a bigger picture in our minds of what might have transpired. You you have to broaden what they taught you in school to begin to get the concepts of what God and these people were dealing with. Now. Let's go to, the, to a couple, three psalms here right quick. Psalm 48. And just notice the verbiage, the way it's expressed. Psalm 48, verse 2. 
Uh, this, this is a very interesting one. Let's start in verse 1. Great is the eternal and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of His holiness. The city of our God is, we know, Jerusalem. The mountain of His holiness is Mount Zion, which we, I believe, have come to see are in this area. Beautiful for situation or elevation. Now, ain't nothing beautiful about Jerusalem or Zion over there in situation or elevation or anything else. Joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion. It was looked to from around the world. The Queen of Sheba came and saw Jerusalem and Mount Zion and Solomon and was awestruck by what she saw that Solomon had and where he was and all those things. So, it was a joy of the whole earth, not just of Israel. On the sides of the north, the city of the great king. So, north of Mount Zion was Jerusalem. God is known in her palaces for a refuge. Now, this is the context, the reason I read that. For lo, the kings were assembled, they passed by together... They saw it, and so they marveled. They were troubled and hasted away. It was so impressive it scared them. Okay? Fear took hold upon them there, and pain as of a woman in travail. The majesty, the beauty, and then the fear of the military of Israel and Solomon and his might. You break the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish it forever. Now this is quite interesting to me, the way it's put. It's talking about Jerusalem and Zion. It's talking about the kings coming and seeing. The Queen of Sheba came to Solomon in Jerusalem and brought ships full of gifts. He had ships going for three-year voyages and bringing imports from all over the world to Jerusalem. Okay? And here it says, you break the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. These kings, the Queen of Sheba, was coming to Jerusalem in a ship. You cannot sail a ship to Jerusalem in the Middle East. You can get several days' walk away in the Mediterranean. I believe that there was a time, the Jerusalem we now are beginning to recognize, you could sail to, right up through the inland sea where the Great Basin is and in from the west. I think that that was highly likely based on what something like this says and what we just read about them coming to Jerusalem. Did they anchor and walk 60, 80 miles? Uh, well, I suppose that's a possibility. But it doesn't sound like that. It doesn't sound like that. Just the verbiage and the way it's put is very interesting, that the ships of Tarshish are broken before Zion. Uh, or sail to Zion, perhaps. It might be interesting to look at the Hebrew there. Uh, Psalm 104. Uh, here I want about verse 24. O Eternal, how manifold are your works! In wisdom have you made them all. 
The earth is full of your riches. Now, this is a, this is a worldwide wide view. There are natural resources over the whole earth that belong to God. So the context here is, is a worldwide scene. So is this great and wide sea, wherein are things creeping innumerable, both small and great beasts. So this isn't a riverboat. We're talking about great and wide seas and all kinds of great beasts. There go the ships through this great and wide sea over this whole earth that is full of the riches of God. There is that Leviathan whom you have made to play therein. Huge sea monsters that are out in the ocean. Uh, Whales, maybe some even bigger. These wait all upon you that you may give them their meat in due season. So he says, God is ruling over the earth, and there are these great seas that go around it. So this is a world view here, and it includes ships that go round the seas. And this was written probably by David, before Solomon was even born. Psalm 107. Uh, Here, let's pick it up in verse 21. Oh, that men would praise the Eternal for His goodness. We sing this one, put the psalm to, uh, in our hymn book. And for His wonderful works to the children of men. And let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare His works with rejoicing. Now, I'm reading these. They don't have to do with the boats and the sea. But they're setting a tone and a context and a, and a worldview again. Uh, and they that go down to the sea in ships that do business in great waters. So this is talking about merchant ships, great waters, going back and forth from country to country. Uh, These see the works of the Eternal and His wonders in the deep. So the ships see the wonders of God in the deep. For He commands and raises the stormy wind which lifts up the waves thereof. Uh, large bodies of water. They mount up to the heaven. They go down again to the depths. So this is talking about huge breakers out in the open ocean. Their soul is melted because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. This is talking about the kind of seas that will scare you half to death. I've been in some of those. I know what they're like. Uh, crossing the North Sea, the ship would be like this, and then it'd be like that, and then it'd like, and, and you could look out and see the water and roll clear over, and that was in a several hundred foot long uh, cruiser. They cry to the Eternal in their trouble, and He brings them out of their distresses. He makes the storm a calm, so the waves thereof are still. Then are they glad, because they be quiet. So he brings them into their desired haven. So they have a port that they're trying to reach. And you have huge seas out in there in the meantime that these merchant ships are having to deal with. And it gets scary out there. But God has the capacity to see that those who are righteous get to port. Uh, Proverbs 31. Turn 
passage, Proverbs 31. We're familiar with this chapter uh, quite and refer to it fairly often about the right kind of woman. Uh, Proverbs 31, verse 14. She is like the merchant's ships. She brings her food from afar. So they compare uh, a productive woman as one like the merchants who import food from long distances across the oceans. Just an analogy they use. They're talking about a woman, but they're using the analogy of importing and merchant ships and so on. Uh, Isaiah 23. I knew that some of these scriptures were here, and I'd kind of gone over them, but when we look at the ark and then we try to say, could it have been possible that I'm setting the stage for showing that mankind went back and forth from continent to continent constantly, from at least from Noah on. And we can see in the Bible a very clear-cut possibility of that. That's why I'm going through quite a few scriptures, not just hitting one or two and and you'd be able to say, well, yeah, maybe. Notice Isaiah 23. The burden of Tyre. Howl, you ships of Tarshish. Now, Solomon had built the navy of Tarshish. For it is laid waste, so that there is no house, no entering in. From the land of Chittim it is revealed to them. Be still, you inhabitants of the island, or the coasts, those whom the merchants of Zidon that pass over the sea have replenished. Now we know that this was an ancient prophecy, but it is also based on the fact that Isaiah is for the future. Uh, it is a prophecy for today, but when was it written? It was written about six, seven hundred BC. And he's describing here ships that go over the ocean. Now, he had knowledge of such things, therefore he could write of such things as a, as a current and future possibility. And apparently it was quite common. He speaks of it as if this is everyday business. Tyre has been a great merchant city, trading all over the world, and I'm going to talk about their ships and their trade and their merchants. And by great waters, the seed of Sihor, the harvest of the river, is her revenue, and she is a market of nations. Now, we look upon New York today as the marketplace of nations. And there is a huge uh, harbor there with marketable things coming in and out, but it isn't our only port. Seattle, Los Angeles, uh, Miami, uh, New Orleans, you know, Houston, go on and on. Uh, we are a great merchant nation, and the merchants of the world we have made rich by American consumerism. We're all very aware of that. But it was talked about back here as if it were something that were going on then the same way as it is now. Uh, like it's just, everybody knows this, you know, he's just talking about it. Uh, as if someone in his day, 700 B.C., could read this, and they'd have a clue what he was talking about. Okay? Now, he says the harvest of the river. What does that mean? 
In ancient times, uh, and we've turned this up in, in different resources, they referred to the oceans as the river. And sometimes when it talks about going across the river, we interpret that to mean the Euphrates River as such. But the ancients spoke of the oceans as the river. There are currents. There is a current that the uh, uh, hurricanes follow from Africa right up along the coast of South America and then right up into the Gulf of Mexico and into the United States. Current goes all along there. goes along uh, the coast of Florida. They call it the Gulf Stream there. And it goes by at about, what is it, three, four miles an hour or so. If somebody gets out and gets lost, their boat quits or something, uh, they don't go out where they last knew they were. They calculate how many hours ago it might have been when they went defunct. And they go on up the coast and start looking based on how fast the current would have covered them, carried them up there. So those currents go across the oceans. It goes on up through by Newfoundland, goes clear back and around to Norway and Iceland and through, through that route. Then there are other currents that come across the sea. Thor Heyerdahl uh, uh, proved that with the Contiki. He made a bulrush boat and went from Africa across to South America. No problem. Across the Pacific Ocean on the currents. So, and, and, and if you look at uh, some maps that are done that, marine uh, charts or whatever, uh, they'll show you right where the currents go in the oceans. You've probably all seen those. Uh, they're, they're like rivers. They are ocean rivers. And that was the way they referred to it, because they'd say, well, I'm going to cross the river. That means they were going to jump on the current going across from the Azores of the Canaries and clear across to South America, across the big river. And he's talking here about worldwide, worldwide trade with the market of the nations and so on. So even in the Bible, the seas and the great bodies of water are spoken of as the river. And it's not just something that we might read in a book that we don't know, well, is that really what they meant? It seems to indicate that right here. Uh, Be you ashamed, O Zidon, for the sea has spoken, even the strength of the sea, saying, I travail not, nor bring forth children, neither do I nourish up young men, nor bring up virgins, as at the report concerning Egypt, so shall they be sorely pained at the report of Tyre. Pass you over to Tarshish, howl, you inhabitants of the coasts. Is this your joyous city, whose antiquity is of ancient days? Her own feet shall carry her afar off to sojourn. Who has taken this counsel against Tyre, the crowning city, whose merchants are princes, whose traffickers are the honorable of the earth? So trafficking and marketing of the earth was being done on a regular basis back and forth across the seas verse 11 he stretched out his hand over the sea he shook the kingdoms the kingdoms of the earth the eternal has given a commandment against the merchant city to destroy the strongholds thereof we could go on it uh, i guess that's about the end of the context there uh, Isaiah 43 and verse 14. 
Is that the one I want? Doesn't look like it. Oh, I'm in 41, no wonder. 43.14 Thus says the Eternal, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, For your sake I have sent to Babylon and have brought down all their nobles and the Chaldeans whose cry is in the ships. I am the Eternal, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Eternal, which makes a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters. Just another reference to show uh, the size, the scope, the scale. And God is showing His power by referring to the seas. So it has to be big water, not little water, that He's talking about here. Isaiah 60, uh, here in verse 9. Surely the coast shall wait for me and the ships of Tarshish first to bring your sons from far overseas, uh, their silver and their gold with them under the name of the Eternal your God and to the Holy One of Israel because He has glorified you. Just another short reference, but certainly a valid one. Ezekiel 27. And here, let's look at verse uh, 2. Now, you son of man, take up a lamentation for Tyre. This is another prophecy about Tyre. We just read one. Say to Tyre, O you that are situated at the entry of the sea, which are a merchant of the people for many coasts, thus says the eternal God, O Tyre, you have said, I am of perfect beauty. Your borders are in the midst of the seas. Your builders have perfected your beauty. They have made all your shipboards of fir trees of Sinir. They have taken cedars from Lebanon to make masts for you. So these were seagoing vessels with huge sails, with masts. Of the oaks of Bashan have they made your oars. The company of the Asherites have made your benches of ivory and brought out of the, brought out of the coasts of Chittim. So, uh, some of these ocean-going ships had masts and sails. Some had uh, oars that they could row when they got out of the currents or did the wind quit. And they were bringing ivory, which was not in Israel, but was in probably Africa, maybe India. Fine linen with broidered work from Egypt, was that which you spread forth to be your sail? Blue and purple from the islands or coasts of Elisha, was that which covered you? The inhabitants of Zidon and Arvad were your mariners, uh, imported sailors. Your wise men, O Tyre, that were in you were your pilots, ship captains. The ancients of Gebal and the wise men there were in, in you your caulkers. They had people coming from all over to caulk, to sail, to man these ships. Uh, all the ships of the sea with their mariners were in you to occupy your merchandise. So it was a huge trading thing that was going on, just as it is today. They of Persia and of Lud and of Foot were in your army. We're going to dis discuss who some of these people were, uh, maybe not tonight, but shortly. They hanged the shield and helmet in you. They set forth your comeliness. Uh, 
Is there anything more about... Well, verse 12, Tarsius was your merchant by reason of the multitude of all kinds of riches with silver, iron, tin, and lead. Iron and lead, you've got to have a pretty decent ship to haul if you, if you bring much. They traded in your fares. So they were bringing cargoes of iron and lead, some of the heaviest things on earth, in the ships to trade. Javan, Tubal, and Meshach. Those are apparently clear around to Asia. So in this, this one chapter, we've talked about Asia, we've talked about Africa, we've talked about uh, North America, where Jerusalem was. This is intercontinental trading, boys and girls. They of the house of Tagarma traded in your fairs with horses and horsemen and mules. They say there were no horses in, on this continent until the Spanish brought them. I think you could probably show that that was not the case. When you had ships going all around the earth and they were hauling heavy metals, they were hauling horses and horsemen and mules. The men of Dedan were your merchants and many coasts were the merchandise of your hand. They brought you for a present horns of ivory and ebony. Syria... Uh, the Middle East is included, was your merchant by reason of the multitude of the wares of your making. They occupied in your fairs with emeralds, purple, broidered work, and fine linen, and coral, and agate. Judah and the land of Israel, they were your merchants. They traded in the, your market wheat of minneth and panag and oil, honey and oil and balm. Damascus was your merchant in the multitude of the wares of your making. For the multitude of all riches in the wine of Helbon and white wool, Dan also and Javan going to and for, fro occupied in your fairs, bright iron, Cassia and Calamus were in your market, Dedan was your merchant in precious clothes. This sounds about like New York today, doesn't it? Arabia and all the princes of Kedar. Uh, we're beginning to wonder if Arabia and the Arabs were not in South America instead of the Middle East. Those people in the Middle East may be somebody else entirely. And these were, they bought lambs and rams and goats. There's another place that mentions horses. I don't, let's sit further down here. Um, the merchants of Sheba, remember the queen of Sheba came to Jerusalem to Solomon. And Rehama, they were your merchants. They occupied in your fairs with chief of all spices, precious stones and gold. Sheba came from a long way away. Haran, uh, maybe around Haran and the Black Sea, Iran. And Cana and Eden. Eden was probably over here. The merchants of Sheba, Asher, Assyria. They may have been either in the area of Mesopotamia. Some of them might have gone to what northwestern Europe by then. And Kilmad were your merchants. If Jeremiah went to Britain and Israel had a presence there then Israel may have already been at the time that this was being written by Ezekiel already in northwestern Europe, and they were trading up out of the, the North Sea and, and uh, everywhere. It just goes on and on here. These were your merchants in all sorts of things, in blue clothes, embroidered work. Um, all these things were among your merchandise. The ships of Tarshish did sing of you in your market, and you were replenished and made very glorious in the midst of the seas. So it was your trading across the seas from around the world that made your reputation. Your roars have brought you into great waters. The east wind has broken you in the midst of the seas. Uh, 
I don't know exactly what that means, whether sometimes they broke down or whether it drove them or broke them across the seas. I'd have to check the Hebrew. Um, your riches and your fares, your merchandise, your mariners and your pilots, your caulkers and your occupiers of your merchandise, the trading people, and all your men of war. So it shows uh, sending military across the oceans back and forth in intercontinental wars, not just local spats that are in you, and in all your company which is in the midst of you shall fall in the midst of your seas in the day of your ruin. Uh, the suburbs shall shake at the sound of the cry of your pilots, and all that handle the oar, the mariners, and all the pilots of the sea shall come down from their ships, they shall stand upon the land, and shall cause their voice to be heard against you, and shall cry bitterly, and shall cast up dust on their heads, they shall wallow themselves in the ashes. Uh, Verse 32, what city is like Tyre, like the destroyed in the midst of the sea? When your wares went forth out of the seas, you filled many people. You did enrich the kings of the earth with the multitude of your riches and of your merchandise. In the time when you shall be broken by the seas and the depths of your waters, your merchandise and all your company in the midst of you shall fall. In the People of the coasts of the world, the kings around the world, and the merchants are going to look down upon the tire spoken of then and the tire of today. How very clear could you get? There's a whole chapter showing what a worldwide phenomenon this was. Chapter 30, verse 9. Uh, in that day shall messengers go forth from me in ships to make the careless Ethiopians afraid, and great pain shall come upon them as in the day of Egypt, for lo, it comes. So God's going to bring plagues and troubles just as He did in the days before they came across the Red Sea on foot. Thus says the Eternal God, I will also make the multitude of Egypt to cease by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon." And a lot of it by sea, obviously. Let's go to Daniel 11. Uh, here, let's see, I want about verse 30. For the ships of Chittim shall come against him. This is an end time prophecy. Uh, therefore he shall be grieved and return and have indignation against the Holy Covenant. Uh, and he shall do, he shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the Holy Covenant. Uh, where's the king of the north? Where's the king of the south? It may be that they go across some seas here. The ships of Chittim are involved in this wars back and forth here at the end time. Uh, and Daniel wrote of it, and he wrote of it as if it were a thing that was happening in an everyday thing. Verse 40, uh, And at that time of the end shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships, and he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. So military ships uh, he was speaking of at the end time. He didn't stop and explain to people who might have read it back then what a ship would be later. They were already using ships and doing these things at that time. 
let's see. Let's just take, take oh, just a couple more. New Testament, book of James. In here I want chapter 3 and verse 4. He's talking here about the tongue, but notice the context. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm wherever the governor desires. So, so the tongue is a little member like a rudder on a ship and boasts great things and how great a fire it can kindle and so on. But the point being, you have a huge ship with a small rudder and it can determine what happens. And you can have you or another human being and a little bitty thing like the tongue by comparison can turn people upside down, inside out and all around, can't it? So James in his day of new new pretty good sized ships, the one in the sea. And yet they'll try to tell you that, why well, they couldn't have done that. They didn't have enough technology until almost the days of Columbus. Uh, wrong. All right, book of Revelation, then we'll finish this uh, thought up here. Revelation 8, verse 9. And the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and the third part of the ships were destroyed. So, showing worldwide shipping that John was writing about. Chapter 18. Uh, verses 17. Now this is speaking of Babylon. For in one hour, verse 17, so great riches has come to nothing, and every shipmaster and all the company and ships and sailors and as many as trade by sea stood far off and cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, What city is like this great city? And they cast dust on their heads and cried, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city, when were made rich, all that had ships in the sea, by reason of her costliness, for in one hour is she made desolate. So the merchants of the sea, verse 15, and so on, it's describing all this great trade that's going back and forth across the ocean. Well, this is John writing about strictly about the future, and yet he understood the trading that was going on. In modern Tyre, this sounds like we're reading Ezekiel 27 about Tyre, isn't it? That he wrote back then about all this. Now maybe I've belabored the point. We didn't need to go through all of that and, and so on. But I didn't bring my watch either. It's what? Ten till nine? Okay, well, we're about done then. Uh, I wanted to take the time to go through some of these scriptures to show us the scope and the breadth and the size of what was going on way back. So that when we hear things on TV or we're sitting in school and they're trying to tell us that mankind didn't have the capacity to go back and forth across the oceans, and it was a very risky thing, and blah, 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 and they didn't discover North and South America, and Columbus discovered it. Oh, give me a break. Think about this. Well, we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, maybe, maybe I'll discuss it a little bit here just in a couple of minutes, but uh, it says in the days of Peleg, it was on this chart, 
the earth was divided. Now we know that the languages were confused and people scattered all over the world at the time of the Tower of Babel. But during the days of Peleg, it says, in particular, the earth was divided. Now, was that a continental division, or is that just speaking of man spreading? Uh, scientists have shown that the earth was at one time one landmass. Okay? You can look at a globe and you see how South America roughly fits into the curve of of Africa, uh, and it is a rough fit, I admit, but they've shown charts of the, inter of the continental shelf of the continents uh, under, that's underwater, you can't see, but it's under there, and how they match. Not roughly, but they match. So I think that the thing is true, that in the days of Peleg, which was when Shem was still alive, let me find Peleg here. Uh, let's see, Shem. Oh yeah, Peleg was just, he lived before and just after the flood for only about 50 years. And Shem and Noah lived way beyond Peleg. So, at the time of the flood, and let's see, Peleg didn't live at the time of Nimrod, and then that, that was a little bit further down, a while after the flood, when there were People had, had multiplied upon the earth to have big enough peoples to do the things that are talked about at the Tower of Babel. So, during the days of Peleg isn't the time that man was separated. During, the, during his life, man died. But I think during the flood, more likely than not, is the time that God divided the continents. Now, people make an objection we have these huge high mountains, you know, 14, 15, 16, uh, 20,000 feet higher if you go over to Everest and so on. Well, look at the coastline of North and South America sometime. Doesn't it look like somebody shoved on the east side and shoved it across and the pressure as it went across wrinkled it? And that's why you have mountains from the tip of southern tip of Chile up through Alaska, a whole range of mountains. So it, it, it wrinkled the west side, and even with the Appalachians and so on on the east coast, when you shove on something, you do a little wrinkle here, and where the greatest resistance is on the far side, it wrinkles even more. So my take is that the mountains were much lower prior to the flood and that the continents were divided, the earth was broken up, remember? The waters came up and everything. It was a time of, of huge change. And the earth, the earth was divided in the days of Peleg. That was toward the end of his life when the flood occurred. So it wasn't a division of men. This just came clear in my mind. That was later on at Babel. So it had to be a physical division of the earth. Well, after Peleg died... Noah lived another 400 years. Uh, Shem lived another 550 years. Arphaxad, who was born right after the flood, lived 403. And they were aware. Shem 
Uh, Noah had lived prior to the flood. So they knew the earth. The earth they grew up in was one piece. Okay? And during the flood is probably the time that it was separated and the continents divided. So they knew what had happened. You know? It, this was here, and this is where those people lived. And now they, they floated way over yonder during the flood. Noah was aware of all this. He saw the world that was there. He floated around, and it was different. It was gone. Parts of it were gone. But he had a boat big enough to go across the ocean, and these people could have built more boats and said, well, you know, that floated over there. I liked, I liked that part of the country. I'd like to go back over there and find it. Don't you think they'd have been curious? What happened? You know, there was a 3,000-foot piece of ground that left. Or went whichever way, wherever they were. They would have been curious to find out. And they had the ship, shipping ability to do it. And then they started trading back and forth across the earth once man was scattered from the Tower of Babel on. So the picture we've been given over the years is ludicrous compared to the Bible story of what really occurred. So let's examine scriptures and we start talking about mankind and how he went from continent to continent. Let's understand it was completely physically possible, and the Bible even records that it indeed did happen. So what they try to fool us with, or say is lost, or couldn't have happened, is ridiculous if you believe God. And you believe in creation, and man being made with a sharp, productive, capable mind from creation, not crawling out of the ocean in slime and developing little thingies and learning to breathe. No, he was smart to start with. And he's kind of gotten dumber as he's gone on, degenerated. Those people were pretty bright back then. David understood things about the stars in the heavens that weren't understood until at least Gamaliel and maybe even by some of our modern uh, telescopes today to catch up with what they understood back then because they calculated time and everything through the stars. So don't think they were dummies and don't buy into evolution even subliminally that they couldn't have done that back then because they were sharp, they were quick, and the Bible account says that they did these very things. They were digging, they were mining, they were shipping back and forth across the earth from time immemorial. Well, that's probably a good place to stop. That kind of does that. Uh, go ahead, Gordon. You were talking about time and observing the stars. They sent a whole group of Russians up there. And they just the point, but I wanted to show kind of a panorama here of what was so that with that in mind, we can easier grasp some of these other things that we're going to be talking about. So I, I think it probably is worth the time to do that. I hope it didn't bore you going through so much of it, but uh, I, I, I hope that we can begin to see a much greater and bigger picture of what God has done, what Israel has done, and what man has done uh, compared to what man today thinks has been done. So...
Uh, let's be dismissed for tonight. It's long enough. We'll see you tomorrow at noon.